You may be seated. Please turn in your bulletins to page five. This morning's sermon text is printed out there and we will be reading it together. As you turn there, I bring greetings from your brothers and sisters in the Lord at the Knox Presbyterian Church in Harrison Township, Michigan. Notice I said the Knox Presbyterian Church. There are a lot of us with that name, so we're the original, the first. We like to lay a claim to that. So, Glad to be here in sunny Flint this morning. It was a blessing that, uh, that uh, Reverend Scribner invited me to come preach this morning, and I hope he has a great vacation this week. We're going to read from Hebrews 11. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 as they are the introduction for the entire chapter. And then we are going to read verses 8 to 16. Please join me now in reading the word of our God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray. Father, bless this, your word to us this morning. Teach us from it. Instruct us in it. Strengthen us by your spirit, in the faith that it challenges us to have, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, that we might rightly worship you, that we might rightly proclaim you here on this earth. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen. <clears throat> well, it is common in discussions of faith to use as an example the various ways that we express our faith in relatively simple, everyday items. For example, uh, we might talk about how the fact that last night each of us went to bed and we set some device, we used to call them alarm clocks, now it's as likely to be your phone as anything else, but we set some device to awaken us this morning. And we trusted that it would, we believed in it and we laid our head on the pillow and went to sleep. We got up this morning and we got in a car and we drove over bridges that we trusted, that, in which we had the faith that they would hold us up. 
We trusted, we believed in the one who drove the car that they would deliver us here safely. And then we came and sat down in pews that none of us consulted a structural engineer to be assured that the pew would hold us up, but rather by faith we sat down and believed the pew would sustain us. These are ways in which we demonstrate faith on a day-in and day-out basis. Yet it's interesting to me that as I consider these things, I'm struck, with by, struck by how often I don't believe in these things. How often I lack the faith to trust them. Let me give you for example. When it's an important appointment tomorrow, when it's a big deal, a job interview, or perhaps I'm preaching at a church that's not my own, I set that alarm and then I don't trust it. I wake up every hour going, did the power go out? Next hour. Did I set it for p.m. instead of a.m.? Next hour. Did I sleep through and hit the snooze too many times? And because of my lack of faith, I don't actually get the rest that I need. Because I don't believe in the alarm when it's a big deal that's on the line. Driving, for example. When I've got all the time in the world, when getting to the appointment is not particularly important, I'm happy to sit in the back seat and let one of our teenagers drive. I like being chauffeured around. It makes me feel important. And yet, when the, the appointment, the destination is one of great importance, when getting there in a timely manner matters, when there's a great deal on the line, well, I've seen how my children play Mario Kart, and in this world there are no bonus lives, and I want to arrive safely, I want to be in control. This ability to demonstrate faith in seemingly small things, but then to demand our own way in the big things, is ultimately at the heart of sin. Was it not the case that Adam stood at the tree, and he looked with his own eyes, and he trusted in his own ears, and rather than believing God, he believed his own judgments, and he ate, and he sinned. And that's the matter that's before us in our text today. The example that's been given to us in this passage from Hebrews 11 is the example of faith, not faith in the small things, not faith when there's nothing at stake, but faith when everything is on the line. Men and women who gave up literally their entire lives to, by faith, obey the call of God in their lives. Now, we'll start by looking at verse 8. Look closely what it says there. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Our first point this morning is quite simply this, that everything else that we're going to talk about today, that everything else that we're going to read from this scripture is predicated on this idea of the call of God in our lives. It's amazing how often we want to get this backwards. As if we show up on God's doorstep and he goes, oh, good to see you. Didn't know you were coming. We didn't have time to read this entire passage of Hebrews 11, but can we imagine for a moment, earlier on it makes reference to Noah, do we imagine for one moment that Noah just got up one day and said, hey, I'm going to build a big boat. 
And God's going to be happy with that. No, it was the call of God in Noah's life in which Noah responded by faith. Abraham did not wake up one morning and say, hey, I'm going to wander around the Middle East and, you know, see where I land. No. It was God's call in the life of Abraham that led to Abraham's faith, which then led to his obedience. I love the example of Lazarus in this regard. Lazarus was physically dead, and it's a good analogy because the Bible tells us that we were spiritually dead. And so Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus gets up and walks out. Now, did Lazarus obey? Absolutely. Did Lazarus play a role? Yes, he did. But don't think for a moment that dead Lazarus laid there and said, I think I want to be alive. It was the call of Almighty God upon his life that made him alive, that made it possible that he could then go out. And that's the point we have here. Abraham's going out to the land that was promised was only possible in response to the call of God upon his life. Now, we cannot spend all morning on this. It is really only a sub-point of our text, and yet it is an important one. Brothers and sisters here this morning, we must all understand that we are here because of the call of God upon our lives. And all else that we might do, all else that we're going to see Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob do is going to flow out of the call of God upon their lives. The faith for which Abraham is commended comes ultimately from the call of God upon his life. How did Paul say it in Ephesians 2? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Catch the next line. That, not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Now the second point we see from Abraham this morning and from verse 8 is that Abraham obeyed and he went out. You know, there's a great deal that's made of about our good works in this world, all the righteous things that we must do, all the ways that we must celebrate our own goodness. Unfortunately, even the church gets caught up in this and tends to become focused on our own good deeds. But notice, first and foremost, that Abraham's good work, his obedience, flowed out of his faith. First, it was the call of God upon his life. Then it was his response in faith, and out of that flowed a good deed. Unless we get this confused, what did we read in the second verse of this introduction here? Was it for their good deeds that the ancients were commended? No, it says they were commended for their faith. For it is by faith you have been saved. Now, having established clearly that Abraham's faith flows out of the call of God upon his life and that it is from that faith that obedience flows, we must now recognize that Abraham responds in true obedience. It's amazing how often we get confused at this point. We talk a lot about good deeds and the righteous things we ought to do. And some of you will say, well, Pastor Sean, aren't those the same thing, good deeds and obedience? And I'm going to say, not quite. Obedience is certainly a good deed. 
but not everything we call a good deed is obedience. You see, we generate artificial good deeds and substitute those in the place of actual obedience. I know some of you probably are wondering if I'm telling you the truth there, and I bring with me an actual example of this. This is from last Thursday's USA Today newspaper, the travel section. I read it online every morning. I downloaded this particular article. Please listen to some of the highlights from this article as proof that we make up our own ways of doing good that are nothing like obedience. First of all, the name of the title of the article is really quite amazing. It's what caught my eye. From the travel section, 10 trips that will make you a better person. Now, you know you're in trouble right there because I'm pretty sure our righteousness is not rooted in vacation. 10 trips that will make you a better person. Here's a, few, a sampling of a few of them. One of them is a social justice summer retreat in New Hampshire. Oh, come on, come on, Scott. The Bible talks about social justice. Come on, that's important, isn't it? Yeah, let me read this article to you. Just a highlight of it. Here, on 455 acres in the White Mountains, you'll swim and canoe in the lake, eat family style with others, and join in talent shows. Daily workshops, workshop topics range from green politics to combating racism and even include Brazilian caporia, that's a type of martial arts, and percussion, blues, poetry, painting, and music classes. Really? That's what social justice is all about? Poetry and pottery and music classes and martial arts? I like this part here about the canoeing and the eating family style. That's what the Shaws do every summer on vacation. We're home free. This is what the world has manufactured as a good deed. The things that will make you a better person. How about this one? Detox and yoga retreat in Thailand. Band together with others who will help you stay on track, whether you're fasting, going on a raw food diet, or committing to a daily yoga practice. Now listen to this. The resort's five-day detox package and seven-day yoga program can be the beginning of your journey back to balance in life. How sad that we think that the physical manifestation of a pagan religion, yoga, will give us balance in life. Really, this is what's going to make us better people? One more out of the ten, just a third example. This one caught my eye. I thought, okay, there's some possibility here. It's a spiritual growth retreat for women, and it's a trip to Israel. Oh, the Holy Land. Okay, good. Here's the opening line. Leave the makeup behind and be yourself. I guess that's important to being a better person. Let me read on. On this 13-day trip, you'll strengthen your faith as you see and reflect on the Holy Land's Religious sites? No. On the Holy Land, significant cultural and natural sites. Go sailing and birding on the Red Sea. Go on an archaeological dig. Float on the Dead Sea and explore Jordan River Nature Reserve. There's even a stop at a winemaking kibitz. Brothers and sisters, we do not need the right vacation to become a better person. And in fact, the book of Hebrews has told us how it is that we are made right before God. Hebrews 10.14 says this, it is by the sacrifice of Christ that we have been made perfect forever and are being sanctified. The right vacation is not going to make you or me a better person. But this is what we invent 
so that we can do this, that which we want to do, rather than actually obey Almighty God. Abraham did not make up a substitute good work. He got up and went where he was told to go and did what he was told to do. Now, sometimes we make up this kind of ridiculousness because we twist Scripture into saying things that it doesn't really mean. We say things like, well, in John 10.10, Jesus himself says that he came to give us the abundant life. Isn't the bigger house and the newer car and, and, and the great vacation, aren't those the things of the abundant life? And yet that thought process is in absolute contradiction to the word of God before us this morning. Look at verse 9. By faith he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. This translation actually, I think, misses it just slightly. It's not so much that he lived in a place that was a foreign land, it's that he lived as a foreigner in that land. He lived as the outsider, as the one who didn't belong, as the one who had no claim to the land. This is startling, this is astonishing, and this is something we need to hear. Almighty God himself came down and told Abraham that the land of Canaan belonged to him, that it was his. If there has ever been anyone on this earth who had a right to name it and claim it, who had a right to live his best life now, to live the abundant life in this world. It was Abraham. God himself said, I am giving you this land. And yet, what do we see here? Abraham did not name it and claim it. He did not try to possess the abundant life in this world. Rather, we look at verse 10 and we see why for he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham had been offered a promise by God himself. And yet he did not believe for a moment that it was something to be fulfilled in this lifetime. How foolish of us to think that the promised land was a promise for this lifetime. Do we really believe that the creator of all the cosmos, the one who ordains all things, the God who, who, who oversees and sustains all things, the one who directs all things to his glory, the one who told Adam to rule over and subdue all the earth, the one who told Noah to fill all the earth, was really going to give his people a little strip of desert, a couple hundred square miles in size? We really believe that's what God has in store for those who are his own? How foolish. Abraham understood that the promise of God was not for a few square miles of desert in the Middle East. 
The promise of God for his own is all the earth, all of creation, all of it. The new earth, the renewed, reclaimed, redeemed heaven and earth. The promised land was to be but a foretaste, an appetizer, an hors d'oeuvre, to whet the appetite, but it was never intended to satisfy. And it is for that reason that Abraham could be satisfied in not possessing it. Because he knew that it wasn't it. Imagine if Abraham had sought his best life now. He may have gained the promised land of Canaan, but he would have forfeited heaven in the deal. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand that's what's before us this morning. This is what is before us every morning. Do you really want your best life now? Do you really want the abundant life now? I remember reading a commentary in the book of Genesis some years ago in which the commentator said that the cherubim and flaming sword that stood at the entryway to Eden to keep the fallen humanity from returning to the tree of life was actually a manifestation of God's mercy. And I remember thinking to myself, how is that God's mercy? That's what the commentator went on to say. Imagine for a moment that Adam and Eve had re-entered the garden and had reached out and taken from the tree of life and lived forever. Do we really want to live forever in this fallen, broken, sin-filled, sin-stained world? Praise God, he put that angel and that sword there to keep that from happening. The question becomes, are we focused on this world? Are our hopes and desires set in this world? Abraham's were not. He looked to the city of God. Though he possessed a direct promise from Almighty God, he said, I know that promise is not for this lifetime. The implications of Abraham's faith go beyond just where are we focused, but then how we will actually live out in this world. You see, when we clamor for the bigger house and the newer car and the perfect lover, we have all kinds of problems. And some of you are saying, whoa there, Pastor Shaw, you're not from around these parts. I might want the bigger house and I might want the new car, but that doesn't mean I'm going to have an affair or get divorced. Why did you have to add on the perfect lover? It's interesting. When the Ten Commandments, the summary of God's moral law was laid down, the Tenth Commandment deals with covetousness, being discontented with that which God has given us, and it tells us that we should not covet our neighbor's house. And it tells us that we should not covet our neighbor's donkey, to offer a parochial translation, our neighbor's new Buick. That was funny. Come on, in Flint? Buick? That's funny. And how does it follow that up? Neither shall you covet your neighbor's wife. You see, a life of discontentment is precisely that, a life of discontentment. 
when we cannot be content with the things that God has given us, with the place that he has put us, we will find discontentment also in the people with whom he has surrounded us. And so Abraham was content to live as a foreigner in the promised land. Because by faith, he looked past the things of this world and saw the one that was to come, and that's what he wanted. Are our eyes set on the things of Flint, Michigan in the year 2014? Or are we focused on the city of God? There is another way this matters. Our world is quickly changing. Our culture is rapidly becoming very different than what many of us remember. Even over just the last few years, the pace of that change has accelerated so that the church, I believe, is going to very soon find itself amongst a culture reminiscent of the first century church. In the midst of a culture that hates the church. In the midst of a culture that will persecute the church. In the midst of a culture that will laugh and scoff at the church. And so I ask us, how is it that we're going to survive these things? When our culture begins to take away our property. When we begin to forfeit our jobs. By the way, if you don't think that's a real thing, I don't know if you heard this week, but the CEO of Mozilla Software, the company that makes uh, Firefox uh, internet browser and other software, was let go by the, chair, by the, uh, the board of directors because he opposed gay marriage. Lost his job because of his stance on a moral issue. Ironically, the company said it was important for them to be diverse. Apparently diverse except for his opinion. We live in a culture in which we will soon go to jail for calling sin, sin, because it's going to be relabeled as hate speech. So the question before us is, how are we as the church going to live under this persecution? And the answer is, how did the first century church do it? And 2,000 years before that, how did Abraham do it? Because they were focused not on the things of this world, but on the city of God. You see, it comes down to this. If my focus is on the mansion that God has built for me, go ahead and take my house, I don't need it. If my focus is on the economy of the kingdom, then go ahead and take my job, because by it I am not storing up true wealth. And if my focus is on eternal life, then go ahead and take this life and get me there so much faster. How does Paul say it? For to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The only way that you and I are going to withstand the onslaughts of this world is by having our focus on the things of the next world. If our attention is on the city of God, 
the city that has foundations, the city whose designer and builder are God himself, then by God's grace, we will be those who overcome. Verse 11 is a challenge in the Greek, for it speaks of Sarah by name and uses feminine pronouns and feminine verbs, and yet assigns to Sarah familial and biological activities that can only belong to a male. And so there is some confusion. I think our translation got it right in, in attributing these things to Sarah, but some of the translations, some very good translations out there, will assign it the faith to Abraham in this verse. So some of your Bibles, if you look at them later, might say, Abraham believed these things and was able to have a son. And our says Sarah. And so you question because, oh, what's going on here? It's a great example of where that debate actually proves that we missed the point. You see, the point of verse 11 is not whether or not it's the faith of Abraham or the faith of Sarah. For if faith is about the believer, about the depth and quality of my faith, then my salvation has become about me and what I do and not about Jesus Christ and what he has done. Look at closely at verse 11 and how they say it. Abraham did not become a father. Sarah did not become a mother because of their great faith. But because the one who made the promise was faithful. You see, the great risk we have is that we begin to have faith in our faith. We begin to trust in our trust. We begin to hope in our hope. And we begin to pat ourselves on the back for how wonderful we believe. Contemporary Christian music does this far too often. Songs talk about all the things that faith can accomplish. It wasn't faith that allowed Abraham and Sarah to have a child. It was God who allowed them to have a child. It wasn't their faith that was faithful. It was the one who promised is faithful. We must not hope in our hope. We must not trust in our trust. We must not have faith in our faith. And this ought to be a great comfort to you this morning if your faith is wavering, if your faith is weak. For consider how Sarah responded when she was told she was going to have a child. She laughed. Not the reaction of a wonder woman of faith. And yet it came true in her life. At some point, she had enough of a nugget of faith to reunite with her estranged husband and miraculously conceive a child who would fulfill God's promise to all mankind by being the one who would lead to the Messiah. It is not the quality of our faith, but rather the one in whom we have believed that makes the difference. And because of the one who is faithful, we see in verse 12 the implications. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Brothers and sisters, it is not the quality or depth of your faith that saves you, but rather if you believe in the one whom the Father has sent, you are saved. 
We move on. We see verse 13. Verse 13 is an incredibly important verse. For on it turns our understanding not only of this passage, but largely of the whole Bible. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I mentioned earlier that Abraham did not possess the promised land. Have you ever stopped to think about the Old Testament and the story contained therein? It's actually a rather dismal book. And if we take the Old Testament on its own, and please hear me say on its own, I don't want you to shout me down as a heretic in a moment. If we take the Old Testament on its own, it is a testament of the colossal failure of the God of the Hebrews. Consider the Old Testament. At its conclusion, the head of the serpent is not crushed. At no point in the Old Testament do Joshua and his own drive out all of the people of Canaan. At no point do David and Solomon possess to the borders that were promised to Abraham. At the close of the Old Testament, there is not even one ruling on the throne, the eternal throne, we're told, of King David. The temple is but a mere shadow of its former self. The Ark of the Covenant is lost. The Shekinah glory has departed. And the promised Messiah has not come. Praise God, the Old Testament does not stand on its own. For it is only in the revelation of Jesus Christ that we understand the things promised. The author of Hebrews even opens his book telling us that. He says, for in the former days, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in various ways and at sundry times. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It is only when we rightly consider Jesus Christ that we will understand how it is that God fulfills all the promises made. And surely, if Abraham, living 2,000 years before Jesus Christ, could look forward and know that the promises of God were not for this world, not for this lifetime, but for the next, then those of us who come 2,000 years after the time of Christ can surely do the same. How does Paul say it in the book of Corinthians? All of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Not in this life, not in the things of this world, not in your best life now, not by naming it and claiming it, but by faith in the one whom the Father has sent. And as we approach Easter and Holy Week and all of the wonderful things we commemorate at that time, are we reminded of how the activities of Holy Week make sure this hope that we're proclaiming right now? For we're told that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do we really think that a God who killed his own son for our sin will renege on his promises in the future? If he was willing to do the one, Paul says he will certainly do the other. 
You say, okay, I can buy that logic that the one, yeah, okay, if he'll do the one, he does the other. But how do I know that it, and the answer is the resurrection. How do we know? Surely a God who can overcome the power of death and raise Jesus Christ from the grave can deliver all the things promised in the city of God. Verses 14 and 15, our author uses a logical argument to prove that his conclusions about these people's faith is correct. And then verse 16, he sums it up again. He says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. How beautifully this hope is fulfilled for those whose faith is in Christ Jesus. From Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, hear this. It is the Apostle John speaking. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. John has given a glorious glimpse of the fulfillment of the promise of the city of God. That those whose faith is in Christ Jesus because of the call of God upon their lives will one day be with him and be his people and they will be his God. Brothers and sisters, it is easy to be here focused. But the exhortation of the text before us this morning is that by faith we must not pursue the things of this world, but we must seek and wait for the city that has foundations, the city whose designer and builder are God himself. Let's pray. Gracious Father, give us this faith. Lift up our eyes from the things that are around us and point them to the city that you are building. Give us an assurance of the certainty that these things are ours because of the death of Christ guaranteed by his resurrection. And through this, by your grace, allow us to be bold in your name. Allow us to be strong for your glory. Allow us to be overcomers through your power. We thank you for this. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time, please stand, take your hymnals, turn to page 705. And we will be singing together, It is well with my soul, the fourth verse of which proclaims our hope in the return of our God. <laughs>